0: podcast where we're talking about climate change and its effects on planet a i'm wyatt jordan
1: i'm brianna waterman this week we discuss how
0: astrophysics applies to climate change this week we spoke with aaron lee a professor in physics and astronomy at saint mary's college in california whose research focuses on the understanding of formation of stars in the milky way and other galaxies this is a very fun interview to do (laughs) aaron is very sweet very funny and um, I hope you enjoy all right Aaron so some astrophysicists refer to Venus as Earth's fraternal twin what makes this the case
1: Venus and Earth are in many ways almost identical. You know, Venus and Earth are roughly about the same size. Venus by mass is about 81%, so about four-fifths the mass of Earth, so they're very similar in mass, and only about like 5% smaller in uh, radius, where the Earth is about 4,000 miles in radius. Venus is about 5% smaller than that. So compared to any of the other planets in the solar system, Venus and Earth are almost identical to to each other in multiple ways. Uh, based on their physical characteristics. Uh, both have atmospheres, both are rocky planets, which makes them you know, very similar, uh, though also very different. For example, a Venus day is about 117 Earth days. You know, so in a Venus uh, year, uh, the time it takes Venus to go around the sun is about two Venus days. Uh, so they have some differences as well, besides the most obvious ones, which is where we're going with this. Venus is a hellish hellscape in that it is the hottest planet in the solar system. It has temperatures on average that are about 460 Celsius, that's about 860 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which is much different than our balmy, you know, 15 to 20 degrees Celsius, um, 80 or so degrees Fahrenheit you know, during the summer months here. Uh, so you can ask yourselves, why is that the case? Um, And we think it is a result of uh, climate change that has made Venus what it is.
0: So what is the runaway greenhouse effect and how likely is it to happen to Earth?
1: So what made Venus the way it is? Or what do we think is our best um, idea for why Venus is the way it is? And we think it was the result of a runaway greenhouse effect. So when we look at the atmosphere of Venus, we see that it is mostly carbon dioxide. It's about 96% CO2. Um, It has very little hydrogen it lacks, it has almost no evidence of water vapor, Um, but it is primarily composed of CO2 as compared to say the earth, which is like 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and maybe a percent or so of water vapor and even less so CO2. So the runaway greenhouse effect, is well, I think on a previous episode you've talked about what the greenhouse effect is, but let's just let's just recap it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The sun emits all kinds of radiation, primarily primarily radiation at, at visible wavelengths. You know, it is unsurprising that humans have evolved to see at visible wavelengths because that is the mostly the type of radiation the sun emits. Uh, that radiation penetrates. Uh, I think about like 80% or so, penetrates the Earth's atmosphere, um, makes it to the surface of the Earth um, where it is absorbed um, by the surface of the Earth. The Earth then reprocesses that energy and re-emits that as a different kind of radiation. So rather than re-emitting the visible light as visible light, it gets re-emitted primarily as infrared radiation. And then this infrared radiation tries to escape. So some of that radiation will then, you know, go back into the atmosphere and try to escape. And and a good amount of it escapes. But then the Earth's atmosphere traps a little of it. So ultimately, energy comes in um, as visible light gets reprocessed. Some of that tries to come out, but then some of it gets trapped. So more energy Mm -hmm. comes in, then comes out. As a result, the atmosphere heats up and the temperatures go up and eventually an equilibrium is reached depending on how much radiation can escape uh, from the surface. Here on Earth, the greenhouse effect is very moderate, which is good because we would not be able to live here on Earth without a little bit of the greenhouse effect. And the Earth, mm-hmm. if, the, if the Earth had no greenhouse effect, the, Earth, the Earth's surface would be uh, freezing temperatures everywhere. So we need a little bit of the greenhouse effect to keep, to keep Earth on the temperatures that it's at that now. We just do not want too much greenhouse effect, which is what we think happened on Venus. So the idea there, with an atmosphere that is, that has very heavily concentrated in greenhouse gases, primarily CO two, radiation comes in, gets reemitted, a good a good majority of it gets trapped, and Venus's surface heats up more and more and more. Mm. Now the idea behind a runaway a runaway greenhouse effect is that um, Venus is in an unstable situation where the greenhouse effect is encouraging the greenhouse effect to occur at a faster rate. On Venus, you know, CO2, when it comes out of the atmosphere, like on Earth, CO2 is is locked up in a lot of the rocks on Earth. You know, there's a lot of CO2 trapped in the surface of the Earth and in the oceans. Mm. And likely that that was the same case uh, on Venus as well. The surface of Venus started to heat up from a little bit of the greenhouse effect that actually encourages more CO2 to seep out of the surface of the earth and go into the atmosphere. So then as the greenhouse effect occurs, more CO2 enters the atmosphere of Venus, which then makes the greenhouse effect even more effective. So now even more radiation is unable to escape. The surface of Venus heats up even more that encourages even more CO2 to be released into the atmosphere and you get a runaway effect. The greenhouse effect makes the greenhouse effect, you know, the future greenhouse effect worse and worse and worse. Eventually now Venus has reached an equilibrium, but it reached an equilibrium, yeah, hundreds of degrees compared Mm. to something that is more livable.
0: Yeah. So the runaway is basically like a positive feedback loop of greenhouse gases?
1: Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Exactly. And now, could that happen to Earth? Um, It inevitably will happen to Earth. Um, The question is when? So without human intervention, it will probably happen on Earth in about 2 billion years or so. The reason for this is because the sun is very gradually getting hotter as stars evolve, the sun gradually heats up. But that, those gradual changes means that the sun is emitting a little bit more energy every year. That means more energy is being absorbed by the surface of the Earth. Which then is encouraging more water vapor to evaporate, which is encouraging more CO2 to seep out of the rocks on the surface of the Earth and leak into the atmosphere. So we, so just by natural consequences, CO2 and H2O will um, fill our atmosphere more and more as time progresses. And it's, I think, scientists believe that in about two billion years, we'll reach a point. Um, I think it's about thirty thousand parts per million of greenhouse um, gases that are needed for this. Aren't we at something like four hundred or so? Um, yeah, we're getting close to four twenty. Yeah. So, in order, you know, so we still have a ways to go for it to naturally to, for it to naturally occur, um, which is why it will mm-hmm. take two billion years. Um, but it will inevitably happen. Of course, we could always speed we could always speed up the clock. You know, if we if we continue yeah. to pump our own CO two methane you know, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, that just reduces the time between when a runaway may or may not happen.
0: So the runaway on Earth would likely happen with water vapor, right? I know people usually use it as an argument against climate change being uh, caused by humans. They say, well, water vapor is like the strongest greenhouse gas. But the more greenhouse gases we put in, the more water vapor technically can be in the water cycle and can be in the atmosphere. And that's going to cause more and more greenhouse effects, right?
1: Right. Because the idea is that the hotter it gets, you know, because, yes, there's water vapor and obviously some of it evaporates. It goes into the atmosphere. But then we have uh, storms and rain that brings it back down to the surface. Um, mm. And the concern is that these sorts of effects will, will prevent, will, will put more water vapor into the atmosphere and storms will not be able to take it out fast enough. CO2 and water vapor will be the big guys uh, with water vapor, I think, yeah, being the, the primary one.
0: So the runaway greenhouse effect is happening on Venus, but was it ever once habitable?
1: Most likely. Um, Again, Venus and Earth were very similar in the past. The tricky thing with Venus is that Venus is very hard to study because of this incredibly thick CO2 atmosphere that it has. We cannot Mm -hmm. see directly to the surface. You know, when you look at images of Venus, um, it just looks like a giant, you know, one big cloud because the atmosphere is so thick. I Mm -hmm. think it's about 90 times, you know, the pressure from the atmosphere there's is about 90 times the pressure on Earth. Like the air is pressing on us, you know, when we walk around outside. We are holding up the atmosphere in a sense as we walk around here on Earth. Um, yeah, and it would be 91 times that, so it would be very it would be very hard to get around. We all would have to more or less crawl around on Venus in order to deal with the pressures that we would have to we would feel from, from Venus's atmosphere. But again, with the idea of the runaway greenhouse effect, we don't think that was the case. At um, in Venus's past, that maybe its atmosphere was something a little bit more um, amenable to being habitable. You know, it is closer to the sun, so uh, the habitable zone, the distances from the sun where liquid water could exist and not immediately evaporate. At the beginning of the sun's life, it was probably very comfortably within the habitable zone. So if it had liquid water, liquid water would have been able to you know persist as oceans and rivers Um, and if it had a a lighter atmosphere it could have been very amenable to life yeah it's again it's very hard to probe since um yeah both it's hard for us to see the surface you know we can't directly see the surface we've sent we've sent satellites that have tried to use uh more or less like a uh, radar uh using radio waves to probe the surface Um, but that only tells us so much but what we have learned from that is also you know with such a big atmosphere And with some evidence that there are volcanoes or were volcanoes on Venus, that also makes it hard because there's a lot of erosion, which more or less kind of wipes away anything that happened in the past, which makes it hard to assess and probe what Venus looks like in the past. You know, to give you an example, like the craters, you know, by studying the craters on the moon, we can learn about what what was happening on the moon millions to billions of years ago. Um, Because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere. If a crater is formed, it more or less remains there forever. Uh, mm-hmm. But with erosion from, you know, just a thick atmosphere, volcanoes, uh, all that kind of gets smoothed away and wiped, wiped off. I think the consensus is that, is that Venus really was habitable at some point. Um, obviously, not so much these days.
0: Wyatt was reading about potential cloud cities in Venus. <laughs> right.
1: What are, your, uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean I, I have many thoughts on this on whether we should be focusing on colonizing <laughs> other planets versus fixing our own. But um but uh, I mean that it that would be, you know, if we really if someone was really insistent on living at on Venus, really really the only way you could or the, the safest way, quote unquote, to do it would be to have a cloud city that where it would be some sort of satellite city that would orbit above the main part of Venus's atmosphere. Which sounds wow. cool, but uh I don't know if that's where our priority should
0: be right <laughs> yeah that's that's fair basically blimp towns
1: would they be <laughs> yes exactly yes <laughs> um get george bluth on this
0: yeah so speaking of focusing on our own versus working on another planet mm-hmm. um could you introduce to us the concept of terraforming mars
1: oh yeah so yeah that's the other end you know like Okay, if Venus is out of the question, maybe we should go terraform Mars. <laughs> um, yeah, Mars is interesting because it, we don't believe it had anything like a runaway greenhouse effect. It kind of experienced the opposite, where it probably was more amenable to uh, things like liquid water and whatnot, and then lost, it, lost the ability to hold liquid water because it lost its atmosphere.
0: So instead of runaway greenhouse effect,
1: the greenhouse gases ran away? Uh, yeah. More or less, because um, we know we know that Mars had water at some point. Rovers yeah. and satellites have imaged mm-hmm. riverbanks and lakes or you know, lake beds on Mars. We know that water once existed on Mars. And in the yeah. very thin atmosphere that Mars has, we detect water vapor. And every now and then it snows on Mars. It evaporates again before it reaches the surface. But um, you know, it can snow on Mars you know, near the poles. Really? Yes. I feel like if anyone is a poet, you know, I feel like a slim volume of poetry called like it's snowing on Mars would be like very, <laughs> ver- very, very appropriate. I would definitely buy that book. But what that suggests, the fact that there's water, the fact that there used to be riverbeds and lakes, suggests that Mars once had a much uh, larger atmosphere that seems to have been lost. And we think the reason hmm. that happened is that when Mars formed, it likely had a molten core like the Earth has. Um, and a spinning molten core generates a magnetic field. Now Life probably would not have been able to develop as much as it has on Earth because the Earth's magnetic field is useful in deflecting energetic particles and radiation away from impacting the surface of the Earth. So like the Aurora Borealis is a pretty version of that, where it's taking radiation yeah. and particles from the sun and deflecting them um, towards the poles. Mars likely has something like that as well, but Mars being a much smaller planet than Earth, we'd think, so after Mars formed, it likely would cool off faster um, oh. than Earth or say Venus did right when it formed four and a half billion years ago. And as the molten core of Mars cooled down, it hardened and stopped rotating as a liquid ball and therefore the the magnetic field went away. Now more oh, okay. ra- now more radiation and particles from the sun can actually get onto the surface of Mars and into the atmosphere of Mars which then, you know, got absorbed by the gases that were in the atmosphere and more or less the atmosphere of Mars evaporated. So the idea of terraforming, say we want to live on the surface of Mars, we would have to go and we would have to somehow create a new atmosphere on more Mars that made it so that we did not have to wear, say, space suits walking around on the surface. So we'd have to release gases that would thicken up the atmosphere so that, one, it could trap heat better, you know, a little bit of a greenhouse effect because the surface of Mars is very cold. And presumably, we want to be able to breathe the air, so it would have to be, you know, also molecular nitrogen, molecular oxygen, et cetera. Mm. But given what I just said, Mars is not really big enough to hold on to its atmosphere. So, it, so if we were to terraform Mars, it would have to be done in such a way that we, it would not be a, something that we do once and then never have to do again. Terraforming Mars would have to be something that we'd be mm-hmm. consistently doing. We'd have to constantly be replenishing the atmosphere of Mars... Because without without a magnetic field to protect it from solar particles, uh, it would just just continuously be evaporating. People have given ideas of how you could do this. I think Elon Musk at one point tweeted, just nuke Mars. Um,
0: (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Which, uh, I don't know. What would that do? Well, I think the idea is that we're going to go... Throw a nuke onto the surface. That obviously is going to release a bunch of crap into the atmosphere. That's a quick way to yeah. to, to make an atmosphere. Um, you know, that's why mm-hmm. you know a nuclear ice age is so is such a fear here on Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, nukes going yeah. off release a lot of stuff back into the atmosphere, which then makes it harder for the radiate for radiation to get in. In our in our case, um, the idea I think that Elon Musk had is that would at least get us started in creating an atmosphere. Yeah, like it would get something going, right? Um, which, again, I I don't think you know. Why are we going trying to mess with other places v- versus making the most of what we have? Um, yes, because mm-hmm. in all honesty, like if we're going to come up with a stable, you know, nuking, let's just throw that idea out. Um, sorry, Elon, but if we're gonna throw, <laughs> if we're going to create an atmosphere in a stable, consistent way in, in order for say civilization to move over to Mars. We're going to have to be able to regulate how the composition of Mars, the atmosphere of Mars, changes. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, so in that case, it'd be, you know, trying to um, very, very sharply control the, uh, the atmosphere and kind of what we're putting into the atmosphere and what we're not allowing to go into the atmosphere in order to keep it at conditions that would be amenable to life. And it's the same sort of technology of, you know, why not take that same idea, but then just do it in reverse? Why not sit and think about, well, how could we instead learn more and think more about how to extract, you know, stuff from the atmosphere? Like, say, take some of the CO2 out of our atmosphere. Yeah. Plus, yeah, plus it's also just a question of how much uh, how much bang for your buck you would get, because there's not enough CO2 on Mars to do this. If you, make the es- mm-hmm. if you make the estimate of how much CO2 would need to be released in order to make Mars you know, a decent place to live because it would have a moderate greenhouse effect, um, there, we don't think there's enough uh, CO2 you know, on the upper layers of Mars to actually do this. So we would have to then also bring yeah. over CO2 from Earth. And if we're taking CO2 from Earth and bringing it to Mars, then why don't we just focus on taking CO2 out of Earth's atmosphere?
0: Mm-hmm. Is there, this is a little bit deeper into it. Is there a way that we could make a magnetic field for Mars? To hold all that CO2? Yeah.
1: One uh, on a planetary scale. Ugh, I would not know how you would go about that because the, you know, the, the <laughs> okay, way cool. the way the Earth does yeah. that is you have the the entire core of the Earth is a liquid ball of metal that's rotating. Mm. And so all those free electrons, so in, in electromagnetism in physics, moving charges. So if you have um, electrons moving through a wire or whatnot, any you know, any charge that is moving creates a magnetic field. So there are, sli- yeah. you know, for al- along a wire, for example, there's a slight magnetic field that's being created from charge moving along the wire. Um, and but to do it on the global scale, like with the Earth, you have the entire core. This is a rotating ball of charge, more or less, which allows, which is how it creates, you know, a global scale magnetic field. Yeah, it would be, it would be a very hard technological problem.
0: So uh, we asked about terraforming Mars because we wanted to know: are there parallels between? doing that with Mars and fixing the climate change here
1: on Earth? In one way, it's putting stuff into Mars' atmosphere, which would be the same sort of technology we we could likely use to extract CO2 um, greenhouse gases from our atmosphere. People are saying we should focus on terraforming Mars. My argument to that would be the technology we would need to do that is the same technology we would need to fix climate change here on Earth. So why not just fix climate change here on Earth?
0: on NASA's website they have like a PDF kind of like an ebook, book uh, called A Meeting with the Universe and when they're talking about weather on other planets there's a quote that I thought was kind of cool and it's, Earth is probably the worst place to learn the laws that govern Earth's weather. Mm-hmm. What are some examples that we have where like studying other planets has helped us learn things about Earth?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a common problem particularly in astrophysics you know like the worst way to learn about the milky way is from our point of view deep inside the milky way
0: yeah (laughs) Um,
1: the worst way to learn about earth's atmosphere is to sit here on earth because we are deep inside earth's atmosphere um, and the chaotic weather patterns that we experience make it hard to kind of see global pictures Mm-hmm. Which is why looking at, you know, atmospheres of other planets, you know, can, um, can give us a sense of kind of what might have happened here on Earth, you know, by comparing it to what is happening on other planets. You know, and a sort of question like that um, gets a little kind of bigger picture where, you know, that likely helps us understand more about, say, how life develops on Earth. When we look at other atmospheres around other planets and moons in the solar system, and we can see what sort of conditions have been created on the surfaces of those bodies that are, that are not earth. We can try to draw parallels between what's going on here on earth, you know, or or assess like, okay, what's the differences between what's going on here on earth and what's going on, on these planets and moons. And then life seems to have developed here on earth. Um, Why, you know, so what is it about earth that helped life develop, you know, compared to these other places? Um, Okay. So, so yeah. So yeah, like the, the, a slight greenhouse effect, you know, again, is a good thing so the fact that earth experienced a slight greenhouse effect did make life easier to develop here on earth where we do not see that on many of the other planets and moons in the solar system because they have very weak or very slight uh atmospheres so they do not have a large greenhouse effect
0: are there any examples of astronomical studies producing negative impacts on earth
1: i would i want to believe no i mean i I feel of all the things that are producing negative impacts on the planet uh, Astronomy and astrophysics, you know, NASA, the European Space Agency, I think we're doing pretty well, given that we are also the bodies that are tied into studying things like climate change. We are yeah. we are fairly self-aware. And we, you know, in terms of the actual production that is occurring on, on the planet, you know, we are very tiny bit. Um, if anything, I would say we're going to have to start thinking more about satellite debris, you know, the more satellites we put into the into the atmosphere but that's a different issue
0: yeah that's what i was thinking like how people propose like just throwing trash <laughs> into um space <laughs> like that kind of thing
1: yeah the good thing there is that space is hella big so if you throw trash into space <laughs> um mm-hmm really who cares um because it 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 will be you know such a tiny tiny minute um impact on the on the entire universe (laughs) but um maybe that's not the right mentality to have but i mean that isn't that isn't an idea
0: yeah it's interesting
1: i kind of i haven't really thought about it but my gut check says yeah that sounds fine All right, I, I would I would say at least like if we're gonna throw it into space, at least throw it in the direction of the sun or something.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah while we are talking about this, I did th- I just thought of one that I looked up, and it was the thirty um, meter telescope mm-hmm. that is proposed to being built in Hawaii, apparently on a yep. dormant volcano that people don't want to be there. I guess that would kind of have an impact on the Earth because of I don't know exactly how the construction of that would work, but I imagine they'd have to tear some of the mountain out. Uh, mostly
1: it looks like people are concerned with the spirituality of the volcano. Exactly. I think that the impact there is mostly to respect the indigenous tribes and to respect the cultures of the land that we are building upon. Um, Hmm. uh, Which, you know, I I, I do believe that the astronomical community, we are very sensitive to this because... We want to respect where we are placing these telescopes because we can't place a telescope anywhere. You know, the reason why there are so many telescopes in Hawaii is because it is out in the middle of nowhere. So you have, you know, great night skies um, because you don't have any light pollution from large cities like Los Angeles or New York or things like that. Um, the atmosphere, since it's in the middle of the ocean, is very calm relative to, say, near a mountain range or where there's large of uh, wind movements um, from the Gulf Stream or stuff like that. So um, you don't have to deal with blurring that occurs from the atmosphere. So high on mountains, you know, away from civilization, ideally in the middle of the ocean or kind of in the middle of, of uh, nowhere. You know, like we have a couple of telescopes that are being built in South, you know, we have some in South Africa. Um, hmm. some in South America um, that have ideal conditions because um, we can, and also just, you know, most of these, te- most of our new telescopes that we're building are also radio telescopes. So it has to be away from say radio stations. If we're going yeah. to, if we're going to study radio waves that are coming from outer space. So um, we appreciate and, and try to be respective of the indigenous tribes and the cultures of, of those around the places we're building it. Um and, and yeah with the 30 meter telescope um that has been an ongoing discussion. Yeah. I see. But in terms, yeah, if in terms of actually impacting the earth itself, uh yeah, the the impact really is not super. Yeah, it's it's very minimal. Cool.
0: All right. As an astrophysicist, yes. What are some of the dumbest things you've heard that people have used to explain climate change
1: other than humans? Yeah, so arguments that people have told me to explain climate change is, you know, one, they say, well, the sun's getting warmer, so it's not man-made. It's just that the sun's getting warmer. Now, is that true, though? I was going to say to that, I say, yes, the sun is getting warmer, (laughs) but over billions of years. Yeah. Um, Not over decades, not over, not over centuries. Yeah. A lot of the arguments that people have with astronomical arguments against climate change is they don't appreciate the timescales. You know, a human lifespan is nothing on astronomical timescales. Most things in astronomy take millions to billions of years. Mm. So some might say, yeah, the sun's getting warmer. It's not us. It's the sun. And I think we, yeah, we talked about this a little at the beginning The sun getting warmer might indeed cause a runaway greenhouse effect here on Earth, but over the course of the next couple billion years, yeah, which cannot explain at all what we have noticed in the last century. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some have argued, well, the Earth is getting closer to the sun, so that's why it's getting hotter. Wow. (laughs) Um, To which I say... False. It is actually moving away from the sun. If anything, the Earth on average gets about one to two centimeters farther away from the sun every year. So that's about mm-hmm. two, fin- two fingernails worth of distance away from the sun. So if you really think a fingernail's width is making a, drast- a dramatic change in a, the climate, you know, when the Earth itself is what, like 93 million miles away from the sun on average, mm-hmm. uh, that's not a very good argument. Plus it also um, you know that ties into I think people's misunderstandings of things like what causes the seasons mm-hmm. um, where it's not actually the distance between the Earth and the sun that causes the seasons, the fact that the earth is tilted. Yeah, And so more radiation is concentrated in one point than the other, which is what makes summer versus winter. Um, people have listened to me talk about the runaway greenhouse effect on Venus, and then I've said, well, then Venus is a great example that climate change is not man-made. It just naturally occurs. Nice. Um, And I'd say, (laughs) nice try. (laughs) Because while while that might be true on Venus, that doesn't mean that humans can't also do it. Yeah. Um, And again, what happened on Venus likely took, you know, tens of thousands to maybe a million years to happen. You know, the runaway greenhouse Mm. effect can Mm. occur very rapidly once it gets triggered, but that doesn't mean that we should not worry about accidentally triggering a runaway greenhouse effect. Yeah. So small anecdote, if you don't mind, of, of where this, oh, one, th- this one came from. So a couple of years ago, I won't give names, but I was asked to be a resident astro- astronomer on a cruise line um, where I was oh, hired like- to come give lectures uh, about um, astrophysics and kind of do star parties you know, to see the stars at night. Um, cool. in exchange for a free cruise, which, you know, could be worse. Could be worse. <laughs> uh, but but this, pati- this particular cruise was a special one that it was not like a Caribbean or one where you can just buy a ticket and go. This was one mm-hmm. where um, in order to be considered to even come on this cruise, you had to prove that you had over $5 million in worth. So this is so, so this is like the one so percent of the one percent types, yeah. Um, and so I'm giving a I'm giving these lectures to given what I just said, unsurprisingly, a lot of white men. Yeah. And. Uh, i was talking so one of my lectures i talked about i talked about the planets and i talked about the both in this in the solar system and outside the solar system so it was just a, a lecture on planets and i mentioned that i you know venus you know in talking about the inner solar system venus is the way it is likely because of a runaway greenhouse effect um, which of course made all the men kind of you know fold their arms together and just harumph Um, Mm. because they thought they knew I was going to start talking about climate change, which I admittedly did not, um, because I knew (laughs) it would be confrontational. um, But I just wanted to say, you know, as a scientist, we are trained to look at the scientific, using the scientific method to understand what is happening in the universe based on data. This is what we think Mm. happened on Venus from data. So then one of the people, they asked this question, and they're just like, well, you know, you are suggesting that maybe climate change is man-made here on Earth, which, again, I had not said, but he took it that way. Um, He's like, I heard that the reason that climate change is happening is because sometimes the planets are aligned with, with one another and sometimes they are not aligned with one another, and the tugs and pulls of the planets on each other actually throws Earth closer and farther away from the sun, which, as a result, causes dramatic changes in the climate. So what we're experiencing now will cancel out, you know, in a little bit when the planets become anti-aligned. Okay. And it was just <laughs>
0: Makes sense. <laughs> this,
1: um I mean, if that were the case, yeah, I could see that. If the, if the earth were being flung across the solar system because of yeah. because of the planets, but obviously that is not what's happening. You know what I think they're confusing is the uh, the Milankovitch cycles? Yeah, that's it. Where, yes, the tugs and pulls of the planets on each other do cause the locations of the planets to wobble a little bit, but these are very tiny changes in their position compared to, I think, what that person had in mind. Mm. Which, yeah, it, it was. it's just frustrating, because in that case, it's like, well, I'm trying to make this a learning moment and talk about why this is not the case. Um, yeah. But... Uh, it's, you know, it's very clear in situations like that, that they are just not open to other ideas, which is what made that that thing that a bit frustrating. Yeah. How did, how did you respond to that? I tried to say it in a very polite way kind of like what I just said of like, well, there are these cycles where the orbits do change a little bit. But again, it does not produce dramatic changes. And, and again, it's a question of time scales. You know, these things happen over tens of thousands of years. So again, it does not really explain what we are seeing over the last century. And I think actually, you know, from those cycles, uh, we're actually in a cooling period where the tugs and pulls will actually make it more amenable to the earth getting slightly cooler, which does not yeah. obviously jive with the data because uh, we are seeing the opposite. I realized when I had mentioned the runaway greenhouse effect and climate change that I had made a grave error. <laughs> <laughs> um given my audience you know a lesson in knowing your audience uh but at yeah, the same
0: but at the same time
1: room. at the at the same time as a scientist i feel you know you it is to. my it is my responsibility to help people learn you know to encourage people to make informed decisions based on listening to experts and you know appreciating the data um on their own versus just listening to what someone else is saying yeah that oh, really? said, it's not surprising that I have not been asked back. <laughs> <laughs> so you got one free cruise out of it? I got one free cruise out of it. Yeah. Wow. I'd love to get one free cruise. I was going to say, it was, you know, obviously, you know, given the uh, people that were on that boat, the boat was gorgeous. <laughs> um... <Nice. laughs> the boat was great. The boat was great. Most of the people were great. Um but yeah uh yeah, I think those are some of the primary ones of just the some of the silly ones that that happen here. Um, a lot of the arguments that people give use that invoke astronomy typically they misappreciate the time scales that astronomy works on um, yeah. anything that can produce anything uh, that looks like uh dramatic climate change usually is a result of processes that take tens of thousands to millions to billions of years mm-hmm. The, the issue there, just to nail this thing on the head, um, right, people then say, you know, so I agree when people say that climate change does occur naturally. And there are ways that you can have climate change that are not man made. But again, you have to look at the data and you have to say whether this data, whether the data and the observations we're making jives with a model that can explain what we're seeing based on, say, astronomical phenomena, which you just can't. You know, things are changing way too rapidly, you know, over the last century for any sort of astronomical process to be the, the main reason. Yeah, it's what's the one. Of the, can I just rant for a second? Is, 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 yeah, it, it's, <laughs> for sure. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I just don't appreciate with climate change, um, like with climate change, people take this very unique view where they think they know the answer or they hear one specific person like give a view. And then they just like they just they buckle down and they stick with it and they just aren't willing to. Um. just accept alternative points of view. Like, I don't know what it is about mm. climate change. You know, I guess it's just the result that it's unfortunately become very political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that people are just unwilling to assess data and just make reach, you know, an evidence-based conclusion. You know, an example that I think of is, you know, like, It's, I would assume that all your listeners and all of us, we have likely at one point in our lives, you know, driven or rode in a car or a vehicle or have, say, a smartphone that we own. Mm -hmm. Both of those two things are incredibly complex marvels of technology. In order for those things to be developed, it took many, many people that had to develop incredible expertise about one subject to design, say, the iPhone or to, say, design a personal motorized vehicle they rely on the expertise of people who are more knowledgeable and have spent their spent their lives in m- most cases studying a very particular subject mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yet for some reason climate change is di- they treat it differently
0: yeah it's buck wild maybe I mean maybe part of it is like so the things going on in your smartphone are a lot of times beyond comprehension of someone who is just like watched a youtube video or something Mm -hmm. whereas someone could go on youtube and say like like type in something about climate change denial and you could actually kind of introduce concepts that these people could understand that are inherently untrue but that they feel like they have a grasp on
1: yeah i I agree i think in addition to that i think it's also you know with climate change if i had to venture a guess it's also a question of immediate impact versus future impact yeah you know, a smartphone and a car, for example, immediately impact our lives. Um, you know, if, if my phone it, it runs out of battery, like my life comes to a standstill, you know, th- that sort of thing. There's immediate mm-hmm. impact on me having a phone and a car and whatnot. So I rely on other, pe- you know, it's. I would imagine it's easier for people to rely on other people to create these sorts of devices that help them live better immediate lives. Where yeah. climate change, since it's a broader picture, longer term um maybe and argue about it yeah um we're we're being generous because sometimes i wonder if it's just people being selfish of like well it won't impact me so who cares but yeah that as well
0: that as well the people who believe in it and then also choose not to do something right that's just a a totally different one anyway end of rant yeah rants always welcome (laughs) (laughs) do we want to do Milankovitch cycles I know you, um, you briefly went into some of it and I don't know if that's all you wanted to do or if you wanted okay. to like kind of explain that as why people sometimes mistakenly think that that's a climate change cause. Yeah, I
1: think I think I more or less said anything I I don't think cool. I could really say anything more about it. Um, just it, cool. it's again, like the cycle's cause, like the orbit of the earth is slightly changed, the tilt of the earth um, slightly changes as well. Um, you know, for example, the moon, the, the fact you know the earth, the earth is slightly tilted. Um, But the tilt of the Earth wobbles or precesses over time um, as a result of it, it, of the Earth interacting with the moon and with the other planets. The moon actually plays a very important role in that it keeps the tilt of the Earth fairly stable. The Earth actually would tilt. uh, It would wobble around much more if we didn't have the moon. So the moon is also, you know, Mm -hmm. as an aside, also really important for the development of life on Earth uh, because it keeps the seasons uh, a little bit more consistent and stable from year to year. Um, but there are slight, you know, it, the earth still kind of wobbles around. And so for example, you know, over the next 10,000 years, uh, you, you know, you might've heard something like the North star will no longer be the North star just because the tilt of the earth will shift a little bit, which can encourage and discourage things like glacial formation because more or less the North pole and the South pole are sometimes, you know, at some points facing towards the sun more than they are at other points, uh, so there can be some climate change as a result of that, but again, this is tens of thousands of years, uh, not centuries. Yeah.
0: I have a controversial question. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> okay. Yes.
0: When will Pluto be avenged? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, these are the real debates. Yeah, we shouldn't be debate. We shouldn't be debating climate change. We should be debating what the fuck happened with Pluto. Oh, sorry. <laughs> should we, should I not swear. <laughs> um, you can cut that out if you if you don't want an explicit rating. What the heck happened with Pluto? <laughs> um, <laughs> I agree with the idea that if we were to discover something like Pluto today, we should not call it a planet. But I I I still think Pluto should have been grandfathered in as one of the yeah. planets of the solar system. It will always be a planet to me. Um, it was a planet when when I was a kid, um, and it will always be a planet <laughs> to me. So it's I sort would, of like an emotional. I would die for Pluto. I would die for Pluto. I, <laughs> I mean, you saw we saw those pictures <laughs> of the New Horizon satellite. took of it. It's beautiful, like um, something yeah. that something that gorgeous should be a planet. But though, I do agree with the new definite. You know, when we think about what makes a planet a planet, um, if we knew what we knew now back when Pluto was discovered, Pluto does not. It does not make sense to call Pluto a planet.
0: Uh, yeah, Pluto. Are the so are the, are the colors of a photo like Pluto? exaggerated at all or filtered at all in a way that this isn't actually what it looks
1: like I mean there's likely more like they probably you know in an Instagram app filter or something you know up the contrast filter you know bar a little bit to highlight the contrast between the the different regions Um, okay but it it is a visible image so that you know that is uh, that is representative of what it would actually look like yes but yeah the the contrast is probably pumped up (laughs)
0: This picture of Pluto that I'm looking at right now looks like, do you remember, did you guys ever have ice cream trucks mm-hmm. in your neighborhood? <laughs> yes. It Literally, it looks like the rocket pop. The red, white, Aww. and blue rocket pops that you get from an ice cream truck is what yeah. Pluto is looking like to me. True. <laughs> oh my God. It's very red, white, and blue in this picture.
1: That's got to be weird. That's got to be a filter. Colorized infrared. Mm. Oh, okay. If there's infrared, yeah. Typically infrared is, they will make it like a rich red or something like that, so... Gotcha that's yeah scary. I was yeah this was not the image I was thinking of like the ones that don't have the red, white and blue um, which looks like those are kind of used to track a storm that was on Pluto
0: okay cool but I have a controversial question okay yes uh, what do Martians look like uh,
1: what do Martians look like
0: what what do they,
1: what do they look like not what would they look like yeah it's what do right. <laughs> Exactly so my first my first point was gonna be so you're assuming they are around <laughs> and exist. Yeah um, of course I have to. Well, I mean, depending on you know depending on what you call what signifies a Martian versus just a uh, life on a different planet like we did have we have it's controversial admittedly, but a couple decades ago, There was some uh, meteorite debris extracted from Antarctica that we believe had um, Martian origins. When we looked in it under a very powerful microscope, we Mm -hmm. seemed to it looked like there was some evidence of kind of little fossil remains of what looked like little worms. Ooh. Um, Now, admittedly, when I say little, I mean really little. Like it would be, which is why it's controversial, and that these these creatures would be not much bigger than, say. like what a a microbe would be or or a virus would be, like these were are very, very tiny, um which makes it makes it controversial because it's debatable whether you could have something that looks more complex than just a virus or a uh or a microbe um be that small um but mm-hmm. you know some people have thought maybe this is evidence that there was some very, very basic form of life on Mars at some point. Um, so I guess you could say that's a Martian, right? Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> um, but whether they are little green men, I'm not so sure about. Cool. Uh, I imagine they might be taller, since the gravity. Of, if if something like a bipedal thing developed on Mars, you know, Mars's gravity is weaker than than Earth's is. So um, oh, cool. There would be uh, less less pull towards the surface. So I imagine it could be easier to be taller on Mars, but.
0: Okay, how do you feel about hmm? How do you feel about the Drake equation while we're on this? <laughs>
1: All right, um, the Drake equation. and can you
0: introduce that maybe? Because I'm, I wouldn't be very good at it.
1: Yes, sure. Yeah. So the Drake equation is a way of estimating how many um, intelligent life forms exist in, say, the Milky Way or a galaxy. Right, where it's like the number of intelligent civilizations is. You know say the average number of stars that are forming in the galaxy multiply that by the fraction of those stars will have planets and the and a fraction of those planets will potentially support life and a fraction of those planets will develop um life at some Mm -hmm. point that we could that we can measure today and a fraction of those planets that develop life will develop not only life but intelligent life and a fraction of those intelligent civilizations will develop the technology Well, that allows us to actually detect that they're there. What this is doing is it's a way of breaking a bigger problem into smaller, more manageable chunks. Yeah. Like the way the Drake equation is phrased, it starts off with, say, there are a bunch of factors that are all multiplied together. And rather than taking the big, huge question of how many intelligent civilizations are there out there, you break that big question into smaller parts where some of those smaller parts you may be able to tackle more easily. For example, one of the terms in the Drake equation is the average rate of star formation in our galaxy. We actually now have studied that particular problem very well. We know that answer very well. So that part of the Drake equation is very well constrained. So now we can focus our efforts on trying to devise experiments and ideas around the other quantities, maybe the ones that are a little bit more unknown. Like for example, we know now, just in the last two decades, we now know from the Kepler space satellite and from observations of planets outside the solar system that all stars probably have at least one Earth-like planet. That's wild. Um, so that so that constrains you know that part of the Drake equation now, which has been in advance in the last you know two decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we can focus on something else. You know, you know the average number of planets that can potentially support life, for example. You know, now as we try to better understand, you know how planets outside the solar system form and how how you know the statistics of them we can start to answer that question of how many are going to have rocky planets that are say at a place where liquid water could exist if we if liquid water is assumed to be necessary for for life
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah so it's breaking you know so i think of the drake equation as taking a bigger question and breaking it into smaller more manageable parts you know. yeah that makes sense which is a good uh, i was going say it's a good strategy in life yeah um, and anything you do, it's so, logical. But this is just one example. Yeah.
0: Now, someone, Brian, I think this is you. Put a picture in our Google Doc of someone who has a tattoo of the Drake equation. <laughs> I did nice. You think long. it was me? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it was Aaron. Isn't there only two of you? There's only two of us, but I don't, I don't know. I
1: think it was Aaron.
0: <laughs> Aaron might have done it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean that's hardcore. Maybe a smaller one. Maybe behind the ear. <laughs> the entire Drake equation. Um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we have some listener questions. We can do them pretty quickly if you if you want. These um because I feel like a lot of the stuff we've maybe already talked about. Okay. But away we go. Uh what holds in the atmosphere?
1: Gravity. The magnetic field of the earth. should, should we just do rapid fire? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> gravity.
1: Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I was hoping for. Uh, four out of five, four out of five times, the answer to everything in astronomy is gravity. Um, good, but uh, <laughs> but gravity holds in the atmosphere of the Earth. Um, the Earth's magnetic field prevents it from from the surface of the atmosphere from continuously evaporating. Cool. Uh,
0: are there seasons on other planets?
1: Probably. Yeah, whether you call this a season or not, uh, on Mercury since its orbit and it, it's it rotates also very slowly. I think like a Mercury year is like, or I think it, a Mercury year is shorter than a Mercury day. Um, so it has you know, it has a very weird uh, orbital, you know, day day year structure. But yeah. you know the nighttime and daytime temperatures of Mercury um, can differ by hundreds of degrees because Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere. So, you know, either one mm. side is getting just impacted by the sun, and then the nighttime there's no atmosphere, so it's easy for all that heat to escape. So you would you could freeze on Mercury, um, even though it's the closest planet to the sun, as long as you stay uh, on the night side.
0: Uh, sorry, are any other planets going through climate changes? I have never even thought about that. Like,
1: is Mars getting hotter? Um... I Imagine well, yes, again, but remember the time scales. Uh, mm-hmm. climate change, like what we're experiencing on Earth, we are not really seeing evidence of on other planets. But again, things like the Sun is getting warmer, so the surfaces of other planets will gradually increase. Um, Mars less so because Mars is both smaller and than the Earth and farther away from the Sun than the Earth is, so less of yeah. the, sol- the Sun's energy is impacting the surface of Mars. Um mm but you know you know i guess in theory it will experience you know very tiny increases in temperature as a result of the sun heating up for example
0: yeah uh and this one not as much of a question but i think i feel like you might still enjoy it um as far as i can tell the planets are either frozen or toasting in various forms
1: lol Uh, that's a nice paraphrase of, who is it, Robert Frost, like, some think the the Earth, will, the world will end in fire, some in ice. Wow, <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> that's what Robert Frost would write if he were to write that poem today. Yeah, I think, you know, again, I think this gets back to a little bit of a greenhouse effect is good, which is why on Earth seems to be kind of in the sweet spot where it is kind of at a nice distance from the sun where liquid water can exist. Experiences a slight greenhouse effect due to what's in our atmosphere, which makes temperatures that are more temperate um, as compared to other planets. Which most of them, you know, the, for all the other smaller planets like Mars and Mercury, they don't really have atmospheres. Mm. They, te- you know, they tend to be either very cold or very hot, depending on whether you know it's daytime or nighttime. Um, Venus is very toasty because of its atmosphere. I don't really know what it means to say you know the temperatures of the gas giants are all very very cold, um, but there's also no surface to hang out on you know because then you're all really really far away from yeah. the sun and you're really not getting any energy um, to heat to heat up. The exception might be like Io, one of the moons of Jupiter, um, which if you Google image you know a picture of Io Io, um, uh, you know I often joke that it looks like a pizza. It looks like a cheese pizza um, because IO experiences very abundant volcanism um, there's lots of active volcanoes on Io um, which I imagine oh, could God. create um, yeah. some some hotter temperatures though at the same time IO doesn't really have an atmosphere so that he would just immediately escape anyway um, yeah IO is very volcanic because it is very close to Jupiter and experiences like how the moon exhibits tides on the earth Jupiter, Creates tides on Io, but Jupiter being very big and Io being fairly close to Jupiter, the tides are not just raising. You know, there's no water on Io, so it's not. But so it's not just something that can raise water levels, but it's actually changing the shape of the planet. Um, so the, the way I like to explain this is if you take like a small piece of play that's cold and you try to manipulate it, it's very hard. It's not very malleable. But the more you tug and pull at the Play-Doh, it becomes easier to kind of shape it yeah. because you're heating up the Play-Doh. Uh, so that's more or less what's happening on Io. Just the tugs and the pulls from Jupiter uh, heat up the planet itself, which allows some of the molten interiors to come out in volcanoes. But yeah, I don't know about any others that, have experienced, yeah. that are experiencing climate change. There are some that have, that might have interesting climates. Like I had mentioned the, Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter, we believe has liquid water underneath the surface of that moon. Um, again, because it has no atmosphere, the, atmos- the surface of the moon is incredibly cold, but it experiences tidal tugs and pulls from Jupiter, which you know, going back to the Plato example, kind of heats up the interior and it's farther away from Jupiter. So it's not as strong of a tidal force as say Io is experiencing. So we think that it's it would heat up the interior enough so that liquid water could exist. So we think that Io has liquid water. And I think, yeah, it's either Io or one of the other moons. We know, we actually do have evidence, we have seen geysers on one of those those moons. So we know that there is liquid water that exists, the question is how much.
0: All right, Aaron, do you have any big takeaways or any
1: organizations you'd like to mention? If I had to have a big takeaway is that, you know, we should all get in the habit of always trying to make informed decisions based on data and what people that are experts in a particular subject are saying. Kind of what I was talking about with, you know, a phone car, phone in a car versus, you know, um, climate yeah. change. You know, again, unfortunately, since climate change has become a political thing and uh, I don't want to make any assumptions or statements about um the political leanings of your listeners, but mm-hmm. the data suggests that this administration does not support climate change science. Yeah. Uh, though I am, I'm happy to see that NASA, you know, if you go to NASA's website on climate change, they still have a very pro humans are causing climate change statement.
0: Excellent.
1: Um, and what I like about what I like about the statement that they make is that they kind of, they tie it back to the scientific method and they talk about um, that, Climate change is likely the result of human activity, you know, and and they have a footnote about this that says, you know, we come to this conclusion from the repeated application of the scientific method. We are looking at the data, and this is what the data suggests. We are not making any sort of personal bias statement. We are just using the scientific method, and this is what data is saying. Um, And that's something I think we should always keep in mind with anything, not just with climate change. Yeah. Make informed, make informed evidence based decisions. Uh, Don't just trust whatever one individual or one entity says.
0: Hell yeah. Definitely. That's why we never, that's why it's never just me and Bree here sitting here talking. Because if it were
1: just us. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. You wouldn't believe us. (laughs) Nor should you. For what it's worth, I have, I have given you a five star rating on iTunes. Yeah. Because I, your interviews are usually really enjoyable. Thank you.
0: Thanks. thank you so much and I'm not
1: just saying that because now I'm an interviewee so. <laughs> yeah now you're an alumni you have to say that
0: <laughs> awesome well I think uh, I think that might be all the questions we have thank you for taking the time yeah no problem we really appreciate it this has been very fun yeah thank yeah, this you was, this was very fun hey everyone thanks for listening to this episode of no planet B if you if you enjoyed it, give us a, a five-star rating on iTunes or and yelp. And yelp if we're on Zagat, <laughs> if we're on Zaget, put us give us five stars on Zagat as well. Also let us know if you're mad about the Pluto situation. Us, like I am. Let us know if you're as mad about this Pluto situation as uh, Brianna is. I'm totally fine with it. Aaron and I were totally <laughs> fine with it is the only one that's upset also if you have any drawings of what you think a martian looks like go ahead and send it in go ahead and send it to no planet b cast uh, on instagram or no planet b cast on twitter or email us at no at gmail.com send us any any emails you have I don't, I won't regret saying that later. Any emails you have for us, go ahead and send them. (laughs) Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your... Day. Did you say day? I think so. Okay. (laughs) Have a great rest of your day.